You are listening to the audio from Grace Bible Church. This audio message is a recording from our Sunday morning worship service. We hope you enjoy. Uh, If you guys will, open up your Bibles to James chapter 2. Book of James chapter 2. And if you don't have your own copy of Scripture with you this morning, it's page 1011, 1011 in the Pew Bible that's sitting in front of you. Church, a story is told of a little boy who wanted $100 so badly that he prayed for two weeks, but nothing happened. And so he decided to write God a letter requesting the $100. When the local postal authorities received the letter addressed to the Lord, USA, they decided to send it to the IRS. The agent who opened up the letter was so impressed and touched and amused that he sent back a $5 bill thinking that to the little boy it would seem like a lot of money. Well, the little boy was delighted with the response and sat down to write God a thank you note. The note said, Dear Lord, thank you very much for sending me the money. However, I noticed that for some reason you had to send it through the IRS. And as usual, those jerks deducted $95. (laughs) Church, I recently came across an interesting observation about the value of money. You know, the value of a $100 bill is not based on how or where it's been used. Likewise, the value is not based on the bill's shape or size or color. After all, a dollar bill has the same shape, size, and color as a $100 bill. If you want to know the value and worth of a bill, what matters most is whose image is on it. For example, if you have a bill with George Washington's image on it, then you know the bill is worth what? One dollar. If you have a bill with Benjamin Franklin's image on it, then you know the bill is worth a hundred dollars. It doesn't matter if the hundred dollar bill is crisp or crumbled, nor does it matter if the condition of the bill is a bit damaged or dirty. As long as that bill is still in circulation, it's still worth a hundred dollars because of the image that it bears. Well, the same is true when it comes to the value and worth of people. Did you know that? You see, regardless of a person's condition, regardless of where they've been or how they've been used, as long as they're still in circulation, in other words, as long as they're still living, they have intrinsic value and worth because of the image that they bear. Genesis 1.27 said, so God created man, read this with me, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. You see, the Bible teaches that all people are fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God, which means all people possess equally high value and worth in the eyes of God. The problem is that we don't always treat all people with the same equal value and worth. Truth be told, sometimes we have a propensity to treat certain people like their $100 bills and others like their $1 bills. In other words, we make discriminatory judgments based upon someone's position or condition or color. And in doing so, we arbitrarily devalue what God has deemed valuable. And so this morning, as we continue our study in the book of James, we're going to find James James addressing the problem of favoritism or partiality within the life of the church. You know, Proverbs 22, 2 says, The rich and poor have this in common. The Lord made them both. The Lord made them both. And so James is going to kind of address this issue within the church, and we're going to be reminded of this important truth about being a follower of Christ. It's this. Faithful Christ followers show no 
favoritism. And we're going we're gonna to understand what this means as we unpack today's passage. So uh, let's pray one more time before we hop into God's word uh, together. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for bringing us to this portion in the book of James. Lord, this is a, this is a hard portion because we're all guilty of, of this sin. And Lord, I just pray that you would speak through me as you have already spoken to me this past week in preparing for this message. Speak to our people, Lord. Help us to leave here as faithful Christ followers. We commit our time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So for those of you who are kind of new to our study, if you haven't been around the last few weeks, uh, the book of James is just a no-holds-barred testimonial on how to have a living, productive, and fruitful faith in a fallen world. And so if you're looking for a book that straight up just tells you, hey, here's how to live your life as a Christian, that's James. If you're looking for a, a book of the Bible that's straight shooting, that's the book of James. And so two weeks ago, we learned that it wasn't good enough to simply be hearers of the word. We heard, it, we heard from James. You can't just be a hearer of the word, you need to be a doer of the word. In other words, you need to practice what you preach or what you hear preached. Last week, James provided some practical examples of what this looks like and how we walk and how we talk and the, the condition of our hearts. And he concluded last week by calling the church to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so one of the more subtle yet detrimental ways the church is stained by the world is by practicing the sin of favoritism or discrimination. You see, evidently this sinful practice began permeating the Jerusalem church, and so James felt the need to address it and correct it. And I want to tell you, look, his words are just as timely now as they were way back then. And so with that, let's begin by reading the whole passage. It's James 2, verses 1 through 13, and then we'll, we'll kind of break it down a bit. Follow along with me in your Bible. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in, comes in and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, for which he has promised to those who love him? But you, you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme in the honorable name by which you've been called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is not without mercy to the one who has shown mercy. No mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. came across something interesting this past week. Mahatma Gandhi, in his autobiography, wrote that during his student days... He read the gospel seriously and even considered converting to Christianity. 
He rightly believed that the teachings of Jesus, or within the teachings of Jesus, you could find the solution to the caste system that was dividing the people of India. Now, a caste system is a division of society based on wealth, rank, privilege, profession, occupation, or race. And so on one particular Sunday, he decided to attend services at a nearby church and talk to the minister about becoming a Christian. However, when he entered the sanctuary, the usher refused to give him a seat and suggested that he go worship with his own people. So Gandhi left the church and never returned. And he wrote, if Christians have caste differences also, I might as well remain a Hindu. You see, church, not only was the usher's prejudice a grotesque misrepresentation and betrayal of Jesus, but it also turned a person away from potentially trusting Christ as their savior. Well, in today's passage, James condemns and he corrects this type of ungodly behavior. In fact, found within today's passage are five factors of favoritism. We're going to work through them quickly. Let's begin by looking at the first. It's the forbidding of favoritism. The forbidding of favoritism. Look again at verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Someone once said that 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week. And quite frankly, it's hard to argue against this. I mean, if you think about it, well beyond the denominational lines that segregate the church, there are countless churches who are segregated by either class, color, or culture, right? Yes? You're with me on this? You understand that? Now, I'm not suggesting that this is always at the fault of the church. The reality is that a healthy local church should reflect their locality. Depending on where a church is located, it may not have the ability to reflect multiple races and classes and colors and cultures. However, the type of segregation that the church is at fault for is when it blatantly mistreats those who come into its gatherings who don't fit the mold. This is when the church fails to practice what it preaches. A.W. Tozer said, There is scarcely anything so dull and meaningless as Bible doctrine taught for its own sake. Truth divorced from life is not truth in its biblical sense, but something else and something less. You see, the Jerusalem church, they didn't have a doctrine problem. In fact, they had no problem holding fast to their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. However, evidently, the church did have a discrimination problem. In other words, their behavior and how they treated others didn't align with their doctrinal beliefs. Their actions reflected something else and something less than their holy calling. And so James gave the church a strong and forceful command to show no partiality to anyone, especially to those who come into their gatherings seeking after the Lord. And so this phrase, to show no partiality, it literally means don't receive the face. Say that with me. Don't receive the face. Don't receive the face. This refers to receiving someone based on external factors. In other words, judging a book by its cover. I've heard it defined as making a judgment of someone's value or worth based on unbiblical criteria and acting inappropriately toward them. So that's what James is condemning. And so he continues by providing a practical example of showing what this type of partiality looks like. Look at verses 2 through 4. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, well, you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down on my feet, 
Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Last month, church, I did a lot of flying. I did a lot more flying in my life happened in the month of June than I think probably ever in my life. I flew from Scranton to Chicago, from Chicago to Seattle, from Seattle to Idaho, from Idaho to Chicago, Chicago back to Scranton. It was a busy month. And in every airport, at every gate, I had the same exact experience. When it was time to board and get our seats on the plane, they began by seating the first-class passengers. Well, that wasn't me. (laughs) And then they seated the active military passengers, of whom I'm very grateful for. Wasn't me. And then they seated the priority member passengers, people that just pay extra to have a cool name, I guess. This wasn't me. And then they seated the families with kids under two passengers. Now, I may have had some kids that were acting under two that day, but that wasn't me. And finally, once all of those passengers were comfortably seated and squared away on the plane, then they called the leftovers. Or at least you kind of feel that way, right? Like the peons, you guys can get on the plane now, find your seat. You're probably going to have to check your bag because there's no room in the overhead because you guys are the last ones on the plane. You see, airports give special treatment to certain passengers based on class and conditions. And even though this type of treatment might work in the context of airports, this type of treatment should never happen in the context of churches. In other words, if one person is given special treatment because of their class, condition, or what they have to offer, while another person is stereotyped, ignored for their class, condition, or what they don't have to offer, then we are judging them with evil hearts. And this type of behavior has no place in the life of a church or a believer. Peter said in Acts chapter 10, verses 34 and 35, Truly I understand that God, he shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You see, church, the Lord, he welcomes and accepts all those who come to him as long as they come to him on his terms. And as his followers, we must do the same. We must do the same. So whether you call it partiality, discrimination, favoritism, if we, determines a per, if we determine a person's worth based on outside factors and give them preferential treatment, if we receive the face, if you will, then we stand in direct opposition to the Lord and his ways. And this leads us to the second factor of favoritism, the foolishness of favoritism. The foolishness. Look at verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? You know, as most of you guys know, in the sports world, there's this thing called home field advantage. When a team plays at home, they enjoy certain privileges that the opposing team doesn't enjoy. For example, the home team enjoys a friendly crowd, a familiar terrain, and forgoes the toil of traveling. And there's also psychological advantages to to playing at home. Needless to say, in the sports world, the home team, or the advantage, almost always goes to the home team, unless you're a Giants fan. (laughs) Well, in the spiritual world, the advantage almost always goes to the poor team. In other words, generally speaking, the poor are spiritually advantaged because their material need makes them much more aware of their spiritual need. Not to mention God has a special place in his heart for the impoverished, the oppressed, and the underprivileged. 
Look at what Jesus said, straight out of the words of Jesus in Luke 4.18. He said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. You see, church, if we're showing favoritism to those who are rich, we're actually shooting ourselves in the foot because we're missing out on opportunities to minister to the poor and oppressed whose hearts are, generally speaking, much more tender towards the Lord and his ways. And likewise, we're actually thumbing our nose at the very people who God defends and has a special affection for. Psalm 140, verse 12 says, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. Another reason why showing favoritism is foolish is because the rich are almost always the first ones in line to persecute Christians. James, look at verses 6 and 7. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you? And the one who drags you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name for which you've been called? Church, we see this happening all the time today, right? Any major Christian court battle, it's because some rich dude who doesn't like Christians and doesn't like our ways is trying to make us, trying to, trying to persecute us and oppress us and our values. Well, in the specific context of this letter, it was a wealthy, it was the wealthy, unbelieving Jews who were the biggest enemies of Christians. They were the ones that were insulting their faith, taking them to court, and speaking against the name of Jesus. And so James is just kind of trying to show, look, at for the church to show favoritism to the oppressors while discriminating, discriminating against the poor, which was, they were much more related, relating to the poor than they were the, the, their oppressors, that's irrational. It's just irrational, to say the least. And so, therefore, James gives the Jerusalem church an alternative response. A response that shows, look it, this is how you ought to treat the rich and the poor. You ready for this? And this brings us to the third factor of favoritism. It's the flip side of favoritism, the flip side. Look at verse 8. He said, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. You are doing well. A story is told that during a very fundamental conservative worship service, a first-time guest began to be moved by the Holy Spirit and started shouting out loud, Amen! And people around him were a little disturbed. I mean, this was a fundamental conservative worship service here. Then louder the man said, Hallelujah! And a few more people became disturbed. And louder still he shouted, Praise Jesus! And then an usher moved quickly down the aisle, bent over, and sternly whispered to the man, Sir, control yourself! And the man proclaimed, I can't help it, I got religion! To which the usher replied, Well, you didn't get it here. Church, oftentimes, we're quick to judge and criticize those who are different than us in the church. And in doing so, we fail to represent the love and compassion of Christ. Now, don't look any further into that joke. It is what, you know, I, what, we do need to have an orderly worship service. I, it was a joke, okay? One of the best antidotes to prejudice is practicing the royal law. That's what James is saying. This law, originally summarized in the Old Testament, was reinforced by Jesus, the Apostle Paul, and here in James. You see, the royal law is also known as the golden rule, and it is the basis for how believers should relate to those around them. 
Simply put, we should treat others the same way that we want to be treated, regardless of their background, race, ethnicity, or economic status. Because by its very nature, when we practice the royal law, it rules out showing favoritism or discrimination because it equals out the playing field for everybody. If we're all treating people the exact same way, then there's no room for favoritism. Does that make sense? Say, that makes sense if it makes sense. I said, say, that makes sense if it makes sense. Does it not make sense? Maybe it doesn't make sense. It makes sense. Okay. If we're all treating people according to the royal law, we're doing well. James says you're doing well. Because obedience to this command is the very essence of righteous kingdom living. We do this, we're doing well. Jesus said it best in Matthew 7, 12. He said, do to others whatever you'd like them to do to you. Why? Because this is the essence of all that is taught in the Law and the Prophets. On the other hand, believers who fail to practice the royal law and practice prejudice instead, well, they find themselves in rebellion before the Lord. 1 John 4.20 says, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And so this leads us to the fourth factor of favoritism. It's the fallout of favoritism. The fallout. Look at verses 9 through 11. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Church, I want you to imagine for a moment that you're hanging from a chain off the edge of a cliff. And that chain is your only lifeline. And if just one of the links on that chain breaks, what's going to happen? Splat, right? You're going to fall. Why? Because all the links are connected to the same chain. And so in some ways, this is an illustration of the connectedness that God's law has and how seriously he takes sin. You see, most people view murder and adultery as the big sins, right? The big sins. And as long as they don't commit the big sins, then they're going to be seen as okay in the eyes of God. The problem is that God doesn't view sin the way that we view sin. To him, it's all connected. If you break one of God's laws, in this case, showing partiality, then you're guilty of breaking the whole law. Because God's law is all part of the same chain. And so here James is actually making the sin of favoritism notorious by linking it with adultery and murder. That's how seriously God takes sin. It's no wonder why Proverbs 28, 21 says to show partiality is not good. It's not good. One commentator noted lives of favoritism are lives in jeopardy. What is, our what, is the, what is our attitude in our heart of the hearts toward the poor, toward other races, toward the uneducated? Do we favor the privileged? These are questions of a moral theologian who is concerned that we have a real faith. So church, when it comes to showing favoritism as both individuals and as a church, we need to agree with God that this is a sinful condition of the heart and we need to repent for practicing it. Because one day we will stand before him and give an account of how we viewed and treated others. 
And this brings us to the fifth factor of favoritism, and it's the forewarning. The forewarning. Look at verses 12 and 13. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the phrase, it's time to pay the piper. Time to pay the piper. This phrase is used when it's time to accept the consequences of a thoughtless or rash action. But interestingly enough, probably most of you don't know the origin of the piper saying, it's time to pay the piper. The phrase is actually said to come from a fable of the Pied Piper of Hamelin. And according to the folklore, a piper was hired to clear out all the rats in the village of Hamelin by playing his trumpet. He must not have been that good of a trumpet player, or playing his pipes, I should say, his pipes. And so he did, but he wasn't paid for his work. And so he took revenge for his lack of payment by stealing all the children from the town. Great story, right? Read that one to your kids at night. <laughs> but see, the moral of the story is that there's always consequences, sometimes devastating consequences, to our wrongful actions. And this is especially true when it comes to our walk with the Lord. And I'm talking about believers here. I'm not talking about unbelievers. They have a whole separate issue they got to deal with before the Lord. You see, the Bible teaches, and we talked about this a few sermon series ago, the Bible teaches that there will be a day when believers will be judged for how they live their lives. And just to be clear, this judgment is not to receive eternal life. It's not to receive eternal life. Your eternal life is secure the moment when you place your faith in Jesus, and nothing can take that away. Jesus said in John 10, 28, I give them eternal life, they will never perish, and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. But nevertheless, there will be judgment for believers. And one commentator noted, he said, this judgment will be no casual prelude to eternity. It will be a solemn time. Why? Because all of our work will be exposed for what it is. You see, not only will the Lord reveal what we did or didn't do, but he will reveal why we did or didn't do it. In other words, the condition of our hearts are going to be like on full display before God. And according to James, showing favoritism is a sign of having an unmerciful heart. And those who have an unmerciful heart will not receive mercy when they stand before God at the judgment seat. What do I mean by that? Well, Paul describes this judgment for believers in 1 Corinthians 3, 15, 13 through 15. He says, it's on the screen, but on the judgment day, fire is going to reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. So there's this idea of eternal rewards that, that believers receive for how they live their lives. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. Now, the builder will be saved but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. So yeah, you can be an unmerciful believer and still get into heaven, <laughs> but only as someone who's barely escaping the flames. In other words, you're going to have nothing to show for it. You've got to deal with that before God. And church, I just think that's a terrible fate for anyone who's a believer. Would you agree? You would have to deal with that before 
God who's, who's, who's given you a holy calling, and you have, to, you have to deal with that before him. Now, praise God, he sees the blood of Jesus and not our sin at the end of the day, but we still have to stand before God and give an account. On the other hand, a truly merciful believer doesn't fear judgment because they rest in the promise of Jesus in Matthew 5, 7. He said, blessed are the merciful. Why? They're going to receive mercy. And so all this to say, as far as it depends on us, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we need to aim to be like Jesus and view people and treat people the way that he does. Matthew 9.36 says it all about how he views people. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and they were helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so it all begins with a heart check, right? This is how we do this thing. Simply ask yourself this question. Have I shown favoritism to or discriminated against someone who looks or acts different than me because of class or race, social or economic status? The answer is yes. I'm fairly certain it probably is for all of us to a degree let me encourage you to repent of that sin, asking the Lord to change your way of thinking so that you might correctly reflect the light and love of Jesus to those around you. 1 John 1, 9, I'm so thankful this verse is in Scripture. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? And so this leads us back to today's truth to remember. Faithful Christ followers show no favoritism. And so, church, I want to close by reminding you of this. Jesus did not show favoritism when he came to die. And thank God that he didn't, yes? Otherwise, we'd all be in deep trouble. In fact, I was reminded this past week that the gospel is for whosoever. It's for whosoever. The old King James says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And you know, what I, you know that thing about whosoever? You know what I learned about that word? Didn't take me long to learn it. Whosoever means whosoever. <laughs> that one's free. You can take that home with you. But this means regardless of your position, your condition, or your color, Jesus Christ came to die for you and save you from the penalty of your sins, which is an eternity spent in hell, and give you the free gift of eternal life. The Bible says to receive this amazing gift, all you must do is believe. Believe that you're a sinner. Believe there's nothing you can do to save yourself from the penalty of your sins. Believe that Jesus died on a cross for you, and he rose from the dead, and he provided the only way to receive forgiveness. And eternal life. Acts 16.31 says, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You know, there's a lot of people out there that, are, that struggle with, with doubt about assurance of their salvation. I just want to point you to these areas of Scripture that say, You will be saved. Or whosoever believes will not perish but have everlasting life. That's a promise. Not something that you have to question the rest of your life. Well, I wonder if I'm going to get in or not. No. That's not how it works. That is God's gift through an act of faith. At the moment of belief, the Lord will give you the power of the Holy Spirit to help you become 
the faithful follower of Christ that he calls you to be. You see, we're called to be faithful followers. We're called not to show favoritism. And you know what? At the moment of belief, it just doesn't happen overnight. For most people, it's going to take time. It's a process. Anybody here like Jesus yet? Just show of hands. There's, like two, there's actually people that, that are like Jesus in this room right now. That, that's what I was asking. A couple people raised their hands reluctantly. I don't think they understood what I was asking. Friends, we're all on this journey together, and, and the Lord wants to change us and make us more like him, and we are to live our lives in a certain way, but that's a process, but it all begins with belief in Jesus. You can't do it without him. You can't be a faithful follower of Christ unless you know him. And so if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, I want to just tell you, let today be the day of your salvation. Now, if you'd like more on what it means to believe in Jesus and receive the gift of eternal life, you can speak to me following the service. You can mark it on your Connect slip, or you can come forward after the closing song. You can grab a packet of information here that has the Gospel of John, has a question book called Ultimate Questions that helps you work through some of those harder questions of life that all point to Jesus. But whatever method you prefer, don't leave today without having assurance of eternal life. Don't leave today without having assurance of your eternal life. And for all of you in this room that are believers and maybe you're feeling a little convicted this morning after what was preached out of God's word, just remember one thing. The Lord is faithful to forgive, dust us off, get us back on the straight and narrow again. And at the end of the day, we are covered by the blood of Jesus. And praise God for that. Amen? We've got to praise God for the blood. And so at this time, I'm going to invite the, the praise team to come forward as we close. And we're going to do exactly that. We're just going to spend our closing moments, thanking Jesus for what he's done for us. Because I don't know about you, as I, the older I get in my faith, the more I recognize how wretched I am. And how, like, I, I find myself praying this more often lately, like, Lord, just thank you so much for the blood of Jesus. Because apart from your blood, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I would be toast. Would you guys agree with that? We'd all be toast without, without the blood of Jesus. So, Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you for your grace and your mercy to us. You came into this world to save sinners. Paul said, of whom I am the worst. Lord, that is a, a magnificent display of your love and your kindness toward us. God, you knew that we would never be able to fulfill your law perfectly, so you sent Jesus to do it for us. And apart from that sacrifice on the cross, Lord, we'd never be able to, to go to heaven. We'd never have an assurance of eternity. And we certainly couldn't live holy lives. So, Lord, I stand here just incredibly grateful that when we fall short of our holy calling, the blood of Jesus fills the gap. Thank you for the gift of eternal life. Thank you for the calling you've given to us. Help us to live holy lives before you. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Grace Bible Church. For more information about our church and our ministries, you can visit gracebiblepa.com.